Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I think where it really hit me, and this moment where it just stunned me, was that, that people just left the Capitol. <laughs> that at some point this was just over in somewhat of a whimper that people just walked away. This is Congressman Andy Kim of New Jersey. The fact that none of them were detained or arrested on that day was just shocking. I remember literally just going to the Capitol and just asking people, like, what happened? How were they allowed to just walk out the door? And... What does this mean for what comes next? It was so confusing to me after what I had seen. So I had a lot of questions. It's January 7th, 2021. Less than 24 hours since the Capitol has been violently attacked. Three individuals are already dead, and more than 100 are injured. Congress has certified the Electoral College vote, cementing Joe Biden as the next president of the United States. But the country is in shock, and the rioters are heading home. Thousands of people who ransacked the Capitol just went back to whatever hotels they were staying at and had had takeout food. Kim is not exaggerating. It appears that thousands of people have committed crimes. Hundreds have committed serious felonies in front of the world. The evidence of those crimes is strewn across an array of platforms— live stream videos, cell phone records, cable news, social media. And yet, the perpetrators were not arrested during this unprecedented attack. And this very second, those droves of rioters are packing up and leaving D.C. en masse. A lot of the people we saw in the building that day, pretty much all of them walked right back out, went to their hotels, got on planes, and flew home. And as Katie Benner of The New York Times explains... This creates a near-impossible task for a particular group of people. Top Justice Department officials were receiving really frantic phone calls from congressional leadership. They were in touch with other administration officials. They were in touch with law enforcement, with MPD. It was clear as the attack was unfolding that the U.S. Attorney's Office in Washington and the FBI field office in Washington were going to be engaged, not just to keep the peace, but to investigate what had happened. For the Department of Justice and the FBI... In D.C. and around the country, January 6th marked the beginning of something huge. Announcing the subpoenas of five witnesses, the committee says, helped organize the rally that preceded the attack on the Capitol. We cannot leave the violence of January 6th and its causes uninvestigated. The indifference shown to my colleagues is disgraceful. You don't answer our questions. You create rigmarole logjams. Former President Trump is trying to stop the White House from turning documents over to the House Committee investigating. This is The Aftermath, Episode 2, Scattered to the Four Winds. There doesn't appear to have been a specific decision by anyone 
to just let everyone leave. It just kind of happened, eventually. A little after 4 p.m., President-elect Biden went on TV to talk to the rioters. This is not dissent. It's disorder. It's chaos. It borders on sedition. And it must end now. He also made an appeal directly to Trump. The words of a president matter, no matter how good or bad that president is. Therefore, I call on President Trump to go on national television now to fulfill his oath and defend the Constitution and demand an end to this siege. It's not protest. It's insurrection. Around 4.15 p.m., about three hours after he'd completed his remarks on the ellipse, Donald Trump finally called on his supporters to go home. I know you're pain. I know you're hurt. But you have to go home now. We have to have peace. So go home. We love you. You're very special. I know how you feel. At this point, the Capitol Police and the National Guard were concerned with restoring order at the Capitol, not with arresting people. Congress itself was busy certifying the election. So nothing was stopping people from just leaving. I'm not sure that anyone made a decision that day that the investigation ought to be handled in one way or the other, or that letting people walk away from the crime scene would hurt or help or hinder the investigation. Chuck Rosenberg served as a U.S. attorney and as chief of staff to both the FBI director and to the attorney general. I think calling it a decision probably gives it too much credit. Um, Capitol Police were overwhelmed, and they were outnumbered. And they made some arrests that day. And a lot of other people just walked away, including people who had committed crimes. And that was unfortunate. But I'm not sure it was a decision. It seemed like a lot of events of January 6th to have just happened without a lot of thought, without a lot of planning, and without a lot of preparation. But if letting everyone go wasn't a decision, it was a non-decision with enormous consequences. It complicated what would become one of the largest criminal investigations in our nation's history. Seamus Hughes is a counterterrorism expert who has worked in various positions for the U.S. government. He now focuses on domestic extremism and U.S. law enforcement response as deputy director of the George Washington University Program on Extremism. Here's Seamus. There was no one arrested that day at the federal level. And so you have you know, more than 1,000 people who crossed a legal threshold, got onto the Capitol, and could be charged with federal crimes that weren't arrested. And they spread back out to the, to the states. And so that makes things a little bit harder. You've got to kind of pick up the pieces on this. You've got to track people down. You've got to work phone numbers, work sources, get tips, do all of the things you need to do in order to build an investigation. It's a little bit easier if you can catch the person in the act at the moment, right? You, you put handcuffs on them, you move on. Here's Chuck Rosenberg again. It's both unusual and difficult for the FBI and the Department of Justice to tackle a case of this magnitude. The fact that there are defendants all over the country isn't really a problem because the FBI is all over the country, as is uh, the Justice Department. But what's difficult is the magnitude of this crime. There is nothing quite like what happened on January 6th in many different ways. An attack uh, fundamentally 
on our democracy and our democratic processes. So if you're using that to look for an analogy, um, we're not going to find one. If you're talking about large gatherings where people commit crimes and otherwise misbehave, sure, there are examples of that, but not in this context, at least not that come to mind. And so, you know, I don't want to say that this is unique, but it's pretty darn close to unique. In the wake of January 6th, there were immediate calls for en masse arrests of all individuals on the Capitol compound and demands that every one of them be hauled into court to stand trial. But our justice system does not work that way. The bedrock of our legal system is the due process of law. You can't be tried for being part of an insurrectionary mob, only for the specific things that you did, or, more precisely, what prosecutors can prove you did. January 6th is not one case, but thousands of cases. It isn't one overarching conspiracy. It's lots of people doing lots of different things, some in concert with others. And so sorting that out, reviewing thousands and thousands of pictures and videos and all sorts of correspondence between people on different platforms. It's a very big job. The Department of Justice headquarters is located in downtown Washington, D.C. It's only a few blocks from the U.S. Capitol. On January 6th, when the streets of D.C. were cleared by Metropolitan Police, who were enforcing the mayor's 6 p.m. curfew, investigators were left with huge amounts of video footage. From cameras in the Capitol area, from body cams of officers, and from the many individuals who documented their exploits with celebratory posts on social media. Here's Katie Benner. So it was sort of an immediate rush to figure out what could be captured um, in terms of evidence from video. There was a lot happening on social media. You saw a lot, you saw a lot of very high-profile actors. The man who was wearing the, you know, the Viking hat and the fur vest, a man wearing a Camp Auschwitz sweatshirt, a man carrying a Confederate flag through the Capitol. These things had already, during the attack, become widely spread on the internet. And they thought to themselves, we need to start figuring out who these people are and really go after some of these very high profile people to show that we are acting, to show that you cannot just walk through the Capitol building waving a Confederate flag. So they sort of they created almost like a SWAT team inside of the U.S. Attorney's Office that was going to focus on nothing else but identifying and finding people who had entered the building and also thinking through how they would be charged, right? Because they knew that however they charged them, in the moment after the attack, the public would be on their side. But court cases take time. And as these things wend their way through the courses, will the charge stand up to an appeal? What can we charge them with and know that we can win? Prioritizing cases is a big problem. As Attorney General Merrick Garland would describe one year later in January 2022. Led by the U.S. Attorney's Office for the District of Columbia and the FBI's Washington Field Office, DOJ personnel across the department in nearly all 56 field offices, in nearly all 94 United States Attorney's Offices, and in many main justice components 
have worked countless hours to investigate the attack. Approximately 70 prosecutors from the District of Columbia and another 70 from other U.S. Attorney's offices and DOJ divisions have participated in this investigation. So far, we have issued over 5,000 subpoenas and search warrants, seized approximately 2,000 devices, poured through over 20,000 hours of video footage, and searched through an estimated 15 terabytes of data. We have received over 300,000 tips from ordinary citizens who have been our indispensable partners in this effort. Here's Chuck Rosenberg. The January 6th investigation is enormously complex, but not because the crime was enormously complex. It wasn't. It was relatively straightforward and simple. What makes it so complicated are the number of people from almost every state in the country, if not every state, who gathered on January 6th for different reasons, with different motivations and different goals, and then who left the crime scene uh, and went back home. And the only trace we had of them uh, might be a shaky video or some correspondence on some social media platform. And so stitching it back together, figuring out who came and why they came and who they came with and what they did that day and who they agreed to do it with is enormously complex. But the underlying crime, nevertheless, remains relatively simple. The George Washington University Program on Extremism began keeping a database of the arrests the week they began. Here's Deputy Director Seamus Hughes. Only a handful of people were arrested the first week of January 6th. So we launched the database the next morning, and we thought we'd get a few cases. We didn't think we'd get to where we are now, which is more than 700 cases. It's been a slow build, and that's a reflection of Department of Justice moving resources, prosecutors to the D.C. office, FBI agents off of ISIS and white-collar crime cases onto these things. The first few months of the investigation for January 6th was, to be frank, a mess. Um, it reminds me of right after... Uh, uh, a high-profile attack or terrorist attack, you know, think of the Boston Marathon bombing when you bring in together all the agents in one room and you've got cork boards and leads and, and tip lines and everything like that. So a lot of my um, old colleagues in the intelligence community were moved off of ISIS and white-collar crime cases and moved on to January 6th. If you look at the affidavits for the days, right, you had agents who traditionally worked on, you know, child pornography cases or white-collar crime suddenly writing affidavits about domestic extremism in January 6th. And they've been ramping up ever since. And it's pretty pretty good clip so far now. So you get at least uh, a case a week, if not more. We're averaging nearly two cases uh, uh, since January 6th a day. And so we're past more than 700 cases now. So how do you organize an investigation like this? An investigation with suspects everywhere. An investigation that uses every FBI field office and every federal prosecutor's office around the country. Chuck Rosenberg says the only investigation like this in the FBI's history was the 9-11 investigation. And even that analogy works only to a point. I think you can draw a rough analogy between the investigations of 9-11 and the, um, and the attacks on January 6th. By that, I mean size and scope. The crimes are very different. Now, you, know, you could argue that both involve acts of terrorism. I know some people have made the argument that 
January 6th was an act of domestic terrorism. In some ways, that's true. But there wasn't a single overarching conspiracy on January 6th the way there was on 9-11. 9-11 was clearly a conspiracy. Uh, and we prosecuted in the United States one conspirator, Zacharias Massawi, and have in um, detention at Guantanamo Bay um, five other 9-11 conspirators. So a relatively small number of conspirators who we are either um, holding for prosecution in the military commission system or who we have prosecuted in the Article Three system. Here on January 6th, uh, we have hundreds and hundreds of individuals who allegedly committed crimes. Some have already pled guilty. And remember, each case has to be about only what each individual defendant did. It has to be investigated individually. The allegations have to be particular to the specific person. The evidence has to be particular. And it has to be provable beyond a reasonable doubt. How do you make sure you're prioritizing the right cases? How do you make sure you're treating similarly people who did similar things? The answer was to centralize the investigation. One of the interesting decisions made um, by the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C. and Maine Justice, they decided that the entire investigation would be run out of the U.S. Attorney's Office in Washington. The defendants lived all over the country. So what you saw was this sort of massive effort to engage all of the U.S. Attorney's offices because the defendants were everywhere. Here's Seamus Hughes. They decided to kind of centralize that. And in many ways, there's pluses and minuses for that. The, the pluses are that you have expertise on this. You can get a sense of cadence and rhythm in terms of investigations. The downside is there's only a finite number of prosecutors at the D.C. office. And even if you bring in more, it's still a bit overwhelming for all of them involved. There's also a side point we have to talk about, too, which is um, defense attorneys and, and particularly federal defenders who uh, have always traditionally been overworked and have way too many cases than, than one should be able to handle. And they're getting basically inundated with all of these cases because a lot of these individuals are getting federal defenders. And so it's a complete strain on the system. Uh, the justice system has never kind of bent the way it's bending now. It hasn't broken yet, but it got damn close. The, the threat landscape in the U.S. is kind of um, a bit all over the map. And so you still have the domestic extremism cases. The FBI director testified a few years ago and said there was 850 cases in all 50 states. When he testified a few months ago, it was 2,700. So you had a, a, a huge rise in domestic extremism cases. At the same time, there's still a thousand active investigations for ISIS cases. There's still a number of kind of single issue extremism cases. It's a fractured landscape in the U.S. And so, of course, when you kind of move resources off, you're going to drop the ball on some of these things. It's just the nature of it. You have finite resources for it. And so, so far, we haven't had a major attack since January 6th. Um, and so, you know, knock on wood, that's that's been a, a success story for the FBI. Um, but it, it's going to affect kind of how we do national security. There's another fascinating aspect of the Justice Department's performance in the immediate aftermath of January 6th. It involves a bit of a detour, and it's a complicated story in its own right. But it's an important one, because if things had turned out otherwise prosecuting the rioters may have looked drastically different. It starts with a question that may seem purely bureaucratic. Will the investigations and prosecutions of the rioters be directed out of the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C., which has jurisdiction over the crimes because of where they were committed? Or will the Department of Justice headquarters itself, known as Maine Justice, play a coordinating role? 
Most criminal investigations are run by U.S. attorneys around the country. But Maine Justice sometimes gets involved where investigations are particularly sensitive or particularly complex. And this is both. Maine Justice and the U.S. Attorney's offices are both staffed mainly with career prosecutors. But Maine Justice has many more political appointees. That is, officials who are appointed by the president and typically serve only during his or her tenure, unlike career officials who serve across administrations. So political interference in an investigation will generally come from Maine Justice, where there is a higher concentration of political appointees. But in the January 6th investigation, somewhat surprisingly, Maine Justice mostly bowed out. The top of the Justice Department at Maine Justice, they were willing to say, you know what, you guys are the people on the ground. We trust your judgment. You're moving fast. This is really important. It was very unusual. And I wouldn't call it a power vacuum, but there was a it was a situation where people were willing to allow officials take actions at a speed that we hadn't seen before. I'll put it that way. We hadn't seen before in previous, at least previous years, at least not during the Trump administration. So... What was behind the decision to run the prosecutions out of the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office instead of Maine Justice? It was partly a strategic call regarding what would result in the most successful prosecutions. But it also had something to do with what was going on inside Maine Justice at the time. Let's go to the White House right now, where some of President Trump's own advisors are growing increasingly worried as he clings to conspiracy theories and spreads false claims about the election. In the days before the January 6th attacks, the department had an attempted coup of its own. Unlike the attack on the Capitol, it happened behind closed doors, not in the open. It didn't involve colorful characters like the QAnon shaman. But this incident also stemmed from Trump's attempt to overturn the election. And it clearly affected the Justice Department's response to January 6th. Katie Benner broke the story in late January 2021. It all starts in the immediate wake of the election, when the media called the election for Biden, and Trump begins crying about election fraud. The mail-in voting scam is the latest part of their four-year effort to overturn the results of the 2016 election. And it's been like living in hell. My opponent was told to stay away from the election. They were acting like they already knew what the outcome was going to be. This put the Justice Department and then Attorney General Bill Barr in a very difficult position. The Justice Department make the decision, we are going to investigate any allegations of fraud because Bill Barr thought it would actually be more harmful to to democracy to say, you know what, we don't do these sorts of investigations before an election is officially called because he felt like it would give Trump's allies room to say, DOJ is refusing to look into this. So the Justice Department begins, quite controversially, looking at various fraud claims, none of which has merit. So they are very busy investigating fraud claims that become more and more and more outrageous, weirder conspiracy theories, but they are basically methodically batting them all down. You can only imagine how much energy this took and how much time and mind space this took at the top of the Justice Department. But the chaos really starts, I would say, on December 1st when Bill Barr says there was no fraud, no fraud that would have changed the election and that Joe Biden's the winner. We have some breaking news. The Attorney General of the United States, William Barr, has just debunked President Trump's claims of widespread 
election fraud. In an interview with the Associated Press, he said, quote, to date, we have not seen fraud on a scale that could have affected a different outcome in the election. I want to bring in CNN legal analyst Ann Milgram. The Justice Department. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Harmon in that moment is the enemy. Bill Barr is a traitor. It's clear he is not long for this world. He is going to be leaving, which he announces two weeks later. In that announcement, his Deputy Attorney General Jeff Rosen is going to step up and take his place. Now, interestingly, inside the Justice Department, Jeff Rosen did not have a lot of visibility into a lot of these weird, chaotic moments. Bill Barr was a micromanager. A lot of things were sort of centralized in the attorney general's office. He didn't deputize a lot of stuff. And he had almost been like the human flak jacket for all of this. So while Rosen is aware that things are getting weird, he's aware that the White House is pressuring Barr, and he's aware that the White House might be making outrageous requests, he doesn't really understand the severity until Barr announces that he will be leaving. And then within 24 hours, Rosen is asked to speak to Trump. You have Barr leave, his key staffers have left, the head of the criminal division has left, the head of Ledge Affairs soon leaves. It is a totally bizarre situation. The Justice Department has debunked a swirl of election fraud allegations. There's an acting attorney general. Everyone around the acting attorney general is also acting, meaning none of them is Senate confirmed for the position they are holding. By law, they are supposed to be there only temporarily, until the president nominates and the Senate approves a replacement, as is required by the Constitution. We're just a couple of weeks before a mob, called to Washington by President Trump, is going to storm the Capitol. And now, the president is aggressively trying to get the department to intervene, to keep him in power. Because again, it has a real Cohen Brothers feel. This is where things get really weird. One of those acting officials, Jeff Clark, everyone in this story is named Jeff, sadly. Jeff Clark, unbeknownst to all of his colleagues, has taken Donald Trump's side and has secretly started meeting with Trump allies. Nobody knows when, but sometime basically between the election and, you know, Christmas. And he is working at cross purposes while everybody at the top of the department is trying to bat down election fraud rumors and prove to the White House that Biden is president. You have a rogue actor who is using the chaos and the fact that people are highly distracted to quietly try to use the levers of the department to show that Donald Trump has won. 
Donald Trump knows an ally when he sees one. Richard Donahue had become acting deputy attorney general in December 2020 when Rosen replaced Barr. At some point before Christmas, they start getting these weird, weird calls from the White House, conversations with the White House, where Donald Trump says something to the effect of, I hear some great things about this Jeff Clark guy. Maybe he should get involved. You can imagine Rosen and Donahue are literally thinking, WTF, how does the president know this guy who people in the department don't even know? I have no idea what is going on, but they know it's not good. And eventually they speak to him and they ask him what's going on. And he comes clean and says that he has been talking to the president. Donahue is a very straightforward guy. He's a very forceful guy. And he, in no no uncertain terms, tells Clark just to cut it out. Like, do not speak to the president anymore. At the very least, you're violating our policies about contacts between the Justice Department and the White House. But God, I mean, this is so weird. You work in the building that is trying to disprove these allegations. You have more access to evidence than anybody else, and yet you're still perpetuating this? Like, this is totally nuts. Clark says he'll stop, but he doesn't stop. Clark makes a couple of requests. He wants an intelligence briefing from ODNI about foreign election interference. You know, again, Rosen and Donahue were like, you you truly have to be kidding. He tells them that he's been doing his own investigation into election fraud in Georgia. Again, Rosen and Donahue were like, are you, are you joking? You're not, you know, your, your job is to run the Environmental and Natural Resources Division and be the acting head of the Civil Division, not to go rogue and, you know, conduct your own investigations. They think the behavior is beyond bizarre. They're truly worried. But things don't really come to a head until Clark tells Rosen that the president has decided that he's going to get rid of him and that Jeff Clark is going to be the new acting attorney general. This is truly unprecedented. The acting head of the Civil Division of the Justice Department is back-channeling with the President of the United States to oust the Attorney General and install himself as Acting Attorney General. That would give him the power to intervene in court cases and help the President falsely allege voter fraud and contest his election defeat. The president was actually actively trying to take out his own attorney general and put in an unknown bureaucrat uh, conspiring with him. For the president to try and get an attorney general who will just totally lie about the results of the election and cause chaos in America. Rosen, however, is not having it. Rosen is, he's, he's very, he's apoplectic. He's been consulting with Pat Cipollone, the White House counsel, and Pat tells him, listen, this is not a done deal. You have the opportunity to come in and and push back because Pat recognizes, Rosen recognizes, and Donahue all recognize that if this happens, it will be a disaster. They've already told the president that he can replace them with whoever he wants. It will not change the results of the election. But they also know that it will throw the entire top of the government into chaos. It will throw the Justice Department into chaos. So on January 3rd at around 6 p.m., they go to the White House to have a conversation with Donald Trump about what's going to happen with the top of the department. Three days before the insurrection, there's a three-hour showdown in the White House 
about whether to fire the acting attorney general for refusing to support Trump's claims of election fraud. As this is unfolding, as they're deciding whether or not to go fight, you know, Jeff Rosen's going to go fight for his job as they're making that decision, news hits earlier that day that Trump had just been on the phone with Mark Meadows pressuring Georgia election officials to find fraud. I mean, like things are getting kind of out of control. And then they march over to the White House and they march over to basically explain why they think that one, Jeffrey Clark's plan to overturn the election, which involves sending letters to Georgia and other swing states, lying and saying there was a lot of fraud found by the Justice Department, so they should, you know, rethink their results, will never work, in part because the Justice Department has not found that fraud. And two, why making him the acting attorney general will cause complete mayhem. And so they march over, they sit in the Oval Office. They have a bizarre, rambling three-hour conversation with the with the president. And in the end, he decides Jeff Rosen will stay, mostly persuaded by the idea that the entire top of the Justice Department would quit. So the attempted coup at the Justice Department was averted. And then? They all show up at work the next day on January 4th and proceed to work together. Three days before January 6th, you almost see a Saturday night massacre at the Justice Department three days before January 6th. Now, can you imagine if the mob had stormed the Capitol and there was literally nobody at the Justice Department at all? Like, no acting officials? I mean, how insane would that have been? Um, but no, they all, they instead, they all trudge back to work together on Monday. They think to themselves, we just got to get through the six. They think that the craziest thing that's going to happen has happened. They think the worst thing that has happened was going to happen has happened and that they weathered it. And there's almost like a sigh of relief. They're just like, we just need to get through Monday and Tuesday, you know, just like we're going to, it's going to be okay. And then we can, we can rest. But there is no rest for the weary. Two days later, the insurrection happens. And partly because of what has just happened in the Justice Department, the political leadership defers almost entirely to the U.S. Attorney's Office and to the FBI regarding how the investigation should begin and proceed. The political people know there is very little they can do here, other than letting the career folks do their jobs and shielding them for a few more days until the transition. So they sit back. We were in such an unusual time at the top of the federal government, especially at the Justice Department. There's a power vacuum. And that vacuum was filled really quickly by people on the ground, particularly the U.S. attorney and the FBI field office director, because they were working so closely and so quickly just to try to make cases and make arrests. They were moving with a speed that's unusual, in part because they don't have the usual amount of oversight by politically appointed officials who are really worried about their legacies and would do things like second guess, have long meetings, say, is this what we really want to do? In the year since January 6th, a narrative has developed in many circles claiming that the Justice Department and the FBI were ineffective in going after the insurrectionists. This is partly because they have, so far, not arrested or indicted any members of the political leadership or the people who organized the rally on the Ellipse. And, of course, they have not gone after Trump himself. For some people, though, the criminal investigation is disappointing for a different reason. They believe 
that the rioters themselves must be held accountable. And they see the prosecutions as both too slow and too lenient. New York Times reporter Susan Dominus has been reporting on the ongoing impact of January 6th on law enforcement officers who were on the ground that day. Here's Susan describing the views of some of the Capitol Police officers she interviewed. Some of the officers, it really was personal. Their anger was mostly reserved for the rioters. You know, that was the immediate threat. Those were the people who were screaming in their face. Those were the people who were calling them the N-word. Those were the people who were threatening to murder them, you know, saying to them, I'm going to rip that mask off and, you know, shove this axe down your throat. I mean, just, it was very, very, it was so intense. And those threats were so salient and the violence was so painful that for some of them, they really didn't go beyond their the experience of that day to start to, to talk about the bigger issue of political accountability. But when considered from a criminal law enforcement perspective, the investigation has actually moved quickly and has been enormously productive. Ironically, the fact that the political leadership was so hobbled meant that the U.S. Attorney's Office was able to act aggressively. They were able to proceed without contrary political pressure or interference from Maine Justice. And when I say they were moving fast, they were moving so fast. It was scores and scores of arrests every single day, again, going after the very most high-profile actors. And you also saw them working hard to figure out whether or not they could charge beyond charging people for breaking into the building. Could they charge them with conspiracy? And could they charge them with something more serious, right? Could they be charged with sedition, for example, that was on the table? They were, they were, it's hard to understate, they were just really, really aggressive and they didn't have a lot of governors on them, right? Maine Justice was really trusting them. And it was interesting. Some would say that the investigation moving at that speed with that aggression was exactly what was needed. But you kind of saw once more political leaders from the Biden administration come in, it wasn't that you saw a slowdown. I would say that you saw more consideration of some of the tactics being used in the U.S. Attorney's Office. And there was a dialing down of aggression, if not um, overall speed in terms of finding people who have been in the building. What you saw was basically a reflection of Department of Justice focusing on, for lack of a better word, the easy cases. So individuals who get interviewed with the FBI and say, yeah, I was there. I walked in the Capitol. I broke a window. I hit a police officer. I shouldn't have done that. You know, I'm willing to accept responsibility for my actions. The more complex cases, the conspiracy charges, things like that, that took a little bit longer, right? We're talking about March uh, after um, January. And so as that builds up, as the more complex cases come on, that's going to take a little bit um, down the rabbit hole for the FBI in terms of trying to get all these pieces together. As these comments reflect, from a criminal law perspective, the defendants have not all engaged in the same conduct and can't be charged with the same crimes. Many of the people on the ellipse that day were just protesting. They weren't committing any crimes at all. And even among the people who participated in some sense in the Capitol attack, it's very likely that most were not part of any organized conspiracy, let alone an organized plot to overthrow the government. So I think there's several ways to look at what happened on January 6th. You know, the most obvious uh, are those who, you know, damaged property and assaulted police officers. I don't like to think of them as minor crimes. Um, if I was a cop on the uh, other end 
a bear spray or a flagpole. It wouldn't feel particularly minor to me. But they're more regular crimes. We see that, unfortunately, um, you know, around the country in various iterations. Uh, we absolutely have to figure out who did that uh, and prosecute and punish them for it. Um, but let's set those aside. And second, we absolutely have to try and identify conspiracies and conspirators whose goal was to obstruct the vote count. The vast majority just showed up as individuals. Uh, and if you look at, at, at how we break it down, the organized groups, the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers uh, are in less than 100 of the cases. Uh, the vast majority, the, the more than 600, are uh, individuals who came with their friends and family or were what we call spontaneous clusters, individuals who met on January 6th and decided to do what they did that day. There are even finer distinctions that prosecutors have had to draw to be able to actually charge each individual with a crime. For example, to prove that someone was involved in a conspiracy, prosecutors must show a number of elements, such as an agreement between one or more people. For each case, they need to prove what sort of conspiracy it was, who else was involved, and what they agreed to. Of course, Plenty of people committed crimes, even if they weren't part of a conspiracy. So then prosecutors have to ask, if the person just showed up, what did they do when they showed up that I can prove was a crime? Charges are generally all over the map. So if you look at it, about half of them are misdemeanors, the other half are felonies. A good number, 100, 120, 130, are um, assaults on police officers um, and then there is a, a much smaller subset of individuals who charge with conspiracy. So those are the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys and the occasional one and two um, you know, mother and, and son groups that kind of organize together. Most of the charges tend to be trespassing. So you know, walking onto Capitol grounds when you're not allowed to, um, breaking a window, that type of thing. And those are individuals who are going to be facing um, shorter sentences. Ultimately, the question before investigators is how much of what happened on January 6th involved individual crimes, and how much was an organized effort to prevent the peaceful transfer of power by violence? And who did the organizing? And that's the part that is most important. And I don't mean to suggest that damaging property or assaulting cops isn't important. It's very important. And those people ought to be charged, and they ought to be punished for those individual acts. But we absolutely have to determine uh, whether within the January 6th insurrection, there was an organized conspiracy to do something far more dangerous. And they all go to the Capitol, uh, not just to break windows, but to prevent the count of the electoral ballots. And so there has to be circumstantially a conspiracy within January 6th to undermine our democracy. As important as it is uh, to prosecute people who assault cops, in my view, it's even more important to learn that conspiracy and to hold accountable those conspirators. At the end of the day, though, every criminal case must charge and try individuals for the specific crimes prosecutors can prove. So who are the people charged so far in connection with the January 6th insurrection? Many of the individuals at the Capitol were charged with misdemeanors, like trespassing. But many others were charged with felonies, more serious crimes. There's a wide range of felony charges that can be brought in situations like this. 
to better understand the types of felony cases that the FBI and the Justice Department have confronted, we chose four specific defendants, each of which stands for some larger body of defendants. We'll give you a sense of these cases in detail and a sense of how many other cases are like these and in what way. We will also follow these cases as they progress, so you can get a sense of what happens to people who did what these defendants allegedly did. In each case, Lawfare Associate Editor Rohini Kurup will summarize the government's allegations, made in indictments and other court documents. We'll go from least to most serious criminal offenses. Our first defendant is Eric Munchell. Eric Munchell is a 31-year-old bartender from Nashville, Tennessee. So Eric Munchell allegedly entered the Capitol on January 6th, but he is not accused of violence or destruction of property. All right, what's your goal here, Mom? What's your goal here, Mom? Prosecutors say that Munchell traveled to Washington, D.C. with his mom and agreed to enter the Capitol on January 6th when a joint session of Congress was certifying the 2020 election. That day, he allegedly knowingly and willfully joined the mob of people who forcibly entered the Capitol building to disrupt the certification of the election. Inside the Capitol, it seems that he walked around and entered the Senate gallery, and the indictment claims that Munchell had a taser with him when he entered the building, which explains a later weapons charge. There are no claims that Munchell was violent inside the building or that he destroyed any property. Eric Munchell gained notoriety from news coverage of January 6th, and particularly from a photo taken of him in the Senate gallery holding a handful of plastic handcuffs. That's why he became known to the public as the zip tie guy. There's reporting that suggests that Munchell didn't actually bring the zip ties into the Capitol, but rather that he found them as he was heading into the Senate gallery. So those are the facts as alleged by prosecutors. The question now is what crimes do those facts represent? And how hard will they be to prove? He he was arrested four days after the Capitol attack on January 10th, 2021. Now a Tennessee man and his mother are back home after they were arrested for participating in the Capitol riots in January. Munchell was initially charged with entering a restricted building and disorderly conduct in the Capitol building. But as his case developed, prosecutors filed a superseding indictment. He's now being indicted on eight charges, including several that are more serious and more legally complex than those that appeared in the original indictment. So Eric is very common, actually, when you look at the data sets of the 700 people. Uh, you know, he, everyone thinks of him as the zip tie guy, but the answer is he had the zip ties because the Capitol Police um, left him on a, on a table when he walked in. And so it was a, a moment of opportunity for those type of things. The, the vast majority of individuals who are arrested haven't been charged with assaulting police officers or haven't been charged with destruction of property. They've been largely been charged with trespassing, kind of the wandering around the Capitol, taking a selfie in the Senate rotunda. And so we see a lot of those cases play out. And you see like individuals who spent five, five minutes in the Capitol or two minutes in the Capitol. Our next defendant is Richard Barnett, who is accused not only of entering the Capitol and breaking into the office of Speaker Nancy Pelosi, but also of brandishing a weapon during a confrontation with Capitol Police. Richard Barnett is a 61-year-old man from Arkansas. The indictment alleges that Barnett entered the Capitol on January 6th and specifically entered House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's office, where he was famously photographed with his feet propped up on a desk in the office. Prosecutors cite surveillance footage and other photos and videos that show Barnett walking around the Capitol with an envelope taken from Nancy Pelosi's office. 
I bled on it because they were f***ing macing me and I couldn't f***ing see. And so I figured, well, I'm in her office. I got blood in her office. I'll put a quarter on her desk, even though she worth it. And according to government documents, after leaving Pelosi's office, Barnett confronted police officers in the rotunda. He demanded that police let him back into Pelosi's office to retrieve a flag, which he left there, or that officers go get it for him. Soon after, body cam footage worn by police shows Barnett pulling out a stun gun and approaching police. Before leaving Capitol grounds later that day, he allegedly used a bullhorn to give a speech to the crowd where he said, we took back our house and I took Nancy Pelosi's office. Barnett's alleged conduct is notably different from Munchell's. The crimes prosecutors can bring against him are more serious as a result. You see these kind of archetypes that that play out in the media. So think of like uh, the shaman or the guy putting his feet up uh, like Richard or the individual stealing um, Speaker Pelosi's laptop. They take an outsized role because their their activities were so almost novel and ridiculous at, at its face. And so what you see is these individuals um, being the first in line in terms of the online sleuths focusing on them. Also the first in line for the FBI to focus on them. Uh, I think the FBI wanted to put their finger on the scale and say this is unacceptable. And so let's let's focus on the individuals who have the highest profile and let's arrest them. Let's charge them. Let's get them off the streets. Richard Barnett was arrested on January 8th, 2021, two days after the attack on the Capitol. He was initially charged with knowingly entering or remaining in a restricted building or grounds without lawful authority while carrying a dangerous weapon, violent entry and disorderly conduct on Capitol grounds, and theft of public money, property, or records. Like in Eric Munchell's case, prosecutors developed the case and brought new charges against Barnett later on, and he's now being indicted on eight charges. Our third defendant is Edward Jacob Lang, who is accused of violently assaulting law enforcement officers. Edward Jacob Lang is a 26-year-old from New York. He did not enter the building like many others who were at the Capitol on January 6th, but he was violent and specifically was violent toward police. According to the government, Lang clashed with police officers outside the Capitol building for several hours on January 6th. Photos and videos the prosecution cites shows him violently engaging with law enforcement officers in a crowd by the lower West Terrace doors of the Capitol building for more than two hours as officers tried to keep rioters out of the Capitol. He allegedly taunted and attacked police officers, hitting them with their own bats and shields. And the government claims that after January 6th, Lang created group chats where participants expressed interest in forming militias and pursuing further violence in Washington, D.C. and elsewhere, including efforts to impede the inauguration. Some of the evidence prosecutors used to build a case against Lang are photos he took and posted to social media on January 6th and the following days. In one instance, Lang reposted a video clip of rioters to his social media with the caption, This is me. Lang's alleged conduct was more extreme than Barnett's, particularly because he violently attacked police officers. So prosecutors could charge him with even more serious crimes. He was arrested on January 16th, 2021, 10 days after the Capitol attack. He was initially charged on four counts, assaulting police, civil disorder, entering restricted grounds, and violent entry or disorderly conduct. A later indictment brought those charges up to 11 counts related to his alleged violent conduct at the Capitol on January 6th. The assaulting of police officers is a relatively easy case to make, um, largely because most of the police officers had body cam video um, that can kind of stream it in real time. There's also plenty of video 
from other accounts that you can use on this. What's interesting when you look at the assaulting the police officers, uh, I struggle to think of a case that involved a Oath Keeper or a Proud Boy assaulting a police officer. The vast majority tend to be kind of pedestrian in nature. These are individuals who um, tended to be kind of spontaneous clusters, meaning that when they attacked a police officer with another individual, they met that individual that day. They did not travel with them prior to that. And so you had these spontaneous uh, clusters kind of get wrapped up in the fervor of the crowd and then attacking police officers um, pretty regularly. You also see, you know, they're using any tools available. You know, think of a, a fire extinguisher or a flagpole or uh, a gate to, to throw cops. And so anything they had could their hands on, they used in order to assault police officers. Our final defendant, who is accused of the most serious crimes, is Kelly Meggs, who is allegedly a member of an extremist anti-government organization called the Oath Keepers. These conspiracy allegations are the rarest and most valuable cases from the government's point of view. Kelly Meggs is a 52-year-old from Florida and is an alleged member of the far-right group, the Oath Keepers. Prosecutors claim that Meggs began planning for January 6th months prior. Just days after the 2020 presidential election, he participated in an online meeting with other alleged Oath Keepers where they discussed defending then-President Trump. In late December, he allegedly joined an encrypted signal chat with other Oath Keeper leaders to plan for January 6th, and charging documents say that he was part of several planning calls between the election in November and January 6th. He also booked several hotel rooms in the Washington, D.C. area for around January 6th for himself and fellow Oath Keepers, according to prosecutors. Prosecutors say that on the morning of the 6th, Meg's prepared for the day by equipping himself with communication devices and wearing reinforced vests, a helmet, and goggles. That afternoon, he and eight other alleged Oath Keepers joined together to form a military-style stack and breach the Capitol building, where Meg stayed for some period of time. At one point inside the Capitol, they searched for House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, but were unable to find her. That evening, according to prosecutors, after leaving the Capitol, Meg's discussed with other Oath Keepers the need to continue fighting. Meg's involvement before, during, and after January 6th meant that prosecutors had a wider range of charges they could bring against him. He was arrested on February 17, 2021. Like the other defendants, the initial charges against Meg's were less severe. They included obstructing an official proceeding and destruction of government property. As this case developed, prosecutors filed several superseding indictments against Meg's. Most recently, Meg's was one of 11 people, all with ties to the Oath Keepers, who were charged in January 2022 with seditious conspiracy in connection to the January 6th attack. This is the most serious criminal charge to be brought against any rioters. Meggs is not typical of the January 6th defendants, but he is not the only one of his kind either. There's at least 40 cases of Oath Keepers have been charged in the data set. Like I said, those are the organized groups, right? They had meet me meetings before, Zoom meetings before. They had a, a general plan, although it was haphazard, um, to you know have their bug out a bag of guns in Virginia and floated across the river when the Capitol gets taken. The vast majority of those individuals have not pled guilty. Those are the complex cases, the conspiracy charges, and that's where it's going to be harder for Department of Justice to make the case. I think they're still going to be able to make the case, but there's a lot of discovery, a lot of motions that have to go back and forth. And you have to prove that these all, all these individuals kind of talk to each other and plan to attack the Capitol that day. We will be following these four cases as they develop and as the Justice Department begins resolving them and other cases like them. We are still in a relatively early stage of this process. 
The first trial of a January 6th defendant did not begin until February 28, 2022. The cases that have already been resolved through guilty pleas have been, for the most part, low-hanging fruit misdemeanor cases. Remember that while it's been more than a year, the prosecutions are far from over, and more people are being arrested every day. The Department of Justice is putting all their resources on this. I think it's fair to say that, again, they're moving prosecutors off of cases, they're moving FBI agents onto cases, they're working weekends and late nights to work this. It is the largest investigation in the FBI's history. It's all hands on deck on this, and I think the Attorney General set the tone that says we're going to prosecute anyone who was there that day. And so you do see a large push by Department of Justice to take this seriously. I would not read too much into, again, the sentencing of these individuals because it's early on. There have been more than 200 guilty pleas, many of them for misdemeanors. These cases have garnered the Justice Department some criticism, both for letting people plead to misdemeanors and for the light sentences defendants have received. But Seamus Hughes and Chuck Rosenberg both say that the pleas so far reflect a Justice Department effort to clear the dockets of minor cases, to focus on the big ones. We're still in the first phase. So if you look at the recent charging, individuals who uh, admitted their guilt to the FBI in the summer or the fall who just got charged last week or the week prior to that. So there's still a, a backlog in the system. The FBI still has um, be on the lookout um, orders for at least 250 individuals. So these individuals, they still want to charge. They, they think they can bring a criminal case from. And so we're still probably going to see kind of, for lack of a better word, the foot soldiers of this. I think we're, we're still at probably another 100, 200, maybe even 300 cases that will come through the dockets in the next com- couple months. And then I think the Department of Justice takes a, takes a hard look at their resources and says, how do we plead out most of these cases? Um, and let's get rid of kind of the, the selfies in the rotunda type of thing. And let's focus on the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys. I think once they get past that process, you know, the attorney general um, gave a speech uh, in early January, which he kind of gave a bit of a wink and a nod, the idea of we will prosecute individuals who were there that day and individuals who inspired people to be there that, there that day. I think the media kind of caught on to that and said, hey, look, he's looking for elected officials. You know, DOJ is not taking anything off the off the plate. I read it to be more like, you know, they're looking at um, uh, leaders of organizations like the Oath Keepers, who Stuart Rhodes, for example, who runs ran the Oath Keepers, who weren't there that day, but encouraged their followers to be so. And so we're not anywhere near that phase of the investigation now. We're still at kind of clearing the decks and of what the, the, the low level cases. I know there's been some criticism of uh, some number of these early cases because folks felt that particular uh, rioters were getting off leniently that they were being charged with misdemeanors instead of felonies, or they were um, not being sentenced uh, to prison, or if they were sentenced to prison only for short periods of time. Uh, That's actually not unusual, and frankly, for me, not troubling. It seems like uh, prosecutors and judges are trying to make principal distinctions between what people uh, did uh, and how they ought to be punished for what they did. That happens all the time. And that let's also be clear, we don't always get that right. That's a very hard thing to get right when you're talking about hundreds and hundreds of people. So uh, it can be frustrating, to, I think, to outsiders to look at it because we have a tendency to lump everything together. Um, but that is not how the crimes unfolded that day. 
I still think there are some larger overarching conspiracies that are much more serious and much more complex. And I'm hoping that uh, the FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Office uh, is still working on those. It's hard to know because we don't have visibility. One year after January 6th, Attorney General Merrick Garland would say in a speech that the investigation was ongoing and would yield more fruit. The actions we have taken thus far will not be our last. The Justice Department remains committed to holding all January 6 perpetrators at any level accountable under law. As we reported, the most serious federal charges yet in the January 6th insurrection were unsealed today. Whether they were present that day or were otherwise criminally responsible for the assault on our democracy, we will follow the facts wherever they lead. The leader of the Oath Keepers, a right-wing paramilitary group, and 10 of his members were charged with seditious conspiracy, attempting to overthrow the United States government. A few days after Garland's speech, the Justice Department unveiled the first indictment that alleged seditious conspiracy. That is, a conspiracy to use violence to overthrow American constitutional government. Our fourth defendant, Kelly Meggs, was one of the 11 people indicted. One year on, the most serious prosecutions are just getting started. We understand that there are questions about how long the investigation will take and about what exactly we are doing. Our answer is, and will continue to be, the same answer we would give to, with respect to any ongoing investigation as long as it takes and whatever it takes for justice to be done consistent with the facts and the law. The Aftermath is a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. I'm your host, Natalie Orpet, Executive Editor of Lawfare. Scripting by me, Ian Enright, Rohini Kurup, Benjamin Wittes, and Kara Schillen. Series executive producers are me, Benjamin Wittes, and Ian Enright. Senior producer is Megan Nadolsky. Associate producer is Rohini Kurup. Interviews for this episode were conducted by me, Benjamin Wittes, and Rohini Kurup. Production assistance from Isabel Kirby McGowan, Kara Schillen, and Max Johnston. Editing, artwork, and scoring by Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo. To learn more about Lawfare, visit lawfareblog.com, where you can find the Lawfare team's January 6th project, Confronting the Capitol Insurrection. You can access special content, including our full interview with New York Times reporter Katie Benner, featured in this episode, by becoming a Lawfare material supporter. Go to patreon.com lawfare to sign up. That's patreon.com slash